We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to discuss an ancient portion of scripture from the prophet Isaiah, where we are told that the Lord will give us a sign that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. What does this mean? And why is it the core of the Christmas story as well as the heart of Christianity? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. As you know, over the course of the last week or so, I have circled back to the story of Christmas and the Advent season several times. I've talked about the etymology of the word Christmas, that it's really the combination of two words, Christ's Mass. I've talked about how the word Mass is a little bit difficult to get your your hands around, but it essentially means this, a meeting, a gathering, a service, a celebration, that you go to church to worship as a group, an event. I would argue that if you're Protestant, you don't need to get hung up on this word, that the word mass is not necessarily a Catholic word. I don't have any problem with that, per se, but I know some of you listening to me right now might say, well, I'm not Catholic, therefore I don't like that word. Well, I would suggest that there are a lot of words (laughs) that have been handed down to us by the ancients, by our forefathers, through the course of history. Words that have been tested by time, defended by reason, given to us by revelation and confirmed through our experience. Again, I'm using the quadrilateral there to evaluate the truth and the veracity of the words that we use to define our faith. So I don't think Protestants can just chuck 1,500 years of church teaching simply because we've had a Reformation. And I don't disparage the Reformation. I believe that it was needed I believe we needed to reform, we needed to repent, we needed to return, we needed to revive. And I also believe there's another word that begins with R that we need to acknowledge, and that is that we also need to receive the wisdom of the ages with humility. And therefore, don't get hung up on this word. Uh, embrace with a good measure of humility the teachings of the past as long as they dovetail with Scripture. I do believe that Scripture needs to be the trump card on every debate. That is the document that we go to to define ourselves. This is the way God chose to reveal himself to us. It was through the Word. It was through the written Word so that we would have that compass, that true north, that defining anchor, if you will, that holds us together when we start to list to and fro. Uh, It it protects us from the natural inclinations of the human mind to be double-minded in all of his ways and therefore unstable, casting 
to and fro with every storm and blowing wind. No, the scripture is our anchor that keeps us, keeps us from shipwreck. So anyway, uh, my point here is this. Don't get hung up on the word mass if you're Protestant. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that we need to acknowledge that preceded the Reformation that's good. And this word mass would be one of those words. Uh, so the the Christmas season is the season of celebrating Christ's Mass, the gathering, the event, the service, the um, celebration of Christ, the worship of Christ. Well, in my efforts to explain Christmas to y'all and actually write about it in the Washington Times, I've come under some criticism. And one of those critiques came from a man in Tulsa who follows me on a Facebook page there called Tulsa Rhinos. Now, this man is often very quick to judge my writing and judge my speaking in a negative way. Now, he has once in a while stumbled across a point of agreement with me, but most of the time he's just very quick out of the box to tell me I'm wrong. And when I posted something this past week celebrating Christmas and saying that we should be thankful for Christmas. I spoke about it here on this show yesterday and the day before, that even atheists should be thankful for Christmas. And tongue-in-cheek, I said atheists should be thanking God for Christmas. Why? Because Christmas changed the world. Because of Christmas, orphanages were established. Hospitals were built. Women were elevated. Civil rights were achieved. Child labor laws were put in place. The sick were taken care of. The elderly were loved. The list goes on and on. Because of Christmas, all of these things have taken place. And the ideas and acts of Christmas have been hurled across the centuries. I quoted Thomas Cahill in saying that. And without those ideas and acts of Christ's Mass, the world would be a pretty ugly place. That was my argument. Well, I was quickly corrected by my buddy on the Tulsa Rhinos Facebook page with this statement. You're mistaking Christmas for Christianity. You're talking about Christmas as if it accomplished all these things, was the seed for all of this good. You're mistaking Christmas. That's just a holiday. That's just an event. You're mistaking it for Christianity. Now, the interesting thing is the same man has described himself as an atheist repeatedly, excuse me, repeatedly, that he doesn't believe in the supernatural. He doesn't believe in the story of Christ. He doesn't believe in Christianity, that he's a materialist, that he's a humanist, uh, that, that he's a modern thinker. He doesn't get all hung up in the voodoo and the, and the superstition and the mythology, the fairy tales of Christianity. So what's his point? Why is he elevating Christianity, in a sense, by saying, well, you're conflating Christmas with Christianity. Well, I'd like to talk about this a little bit on today's show, because really what he's missing here is without 
Christmas, the Advent, the coming of Christ, the birth of the babe in the manger, without Emmanuel, God with us, there is no Christianity. That is Christianity. That's the message that God has come among us. So after the break, I want to discuss Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean? And did Jesus ever actually even claim this identity for himself? Because my buddy at the Tulsa Rhinos is implying that, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the message of Christmas is. He's also implying that Christianity is just a made-up worldview, that there's no substance to it. So, after the break, what did Jesus say about himself, and what does the church teach about Jesus, and what does the Bible, in addition to Jesus' own statements, his own self-identity? In today's vernacular, how did Jesus identify himself? And how did his disciples describe him? Let's take a break, acknowledge our sponsors, and when I get back, I'll answer some of these questions. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. So welcome back to the rebellion. So did Jesus ever claim to be God? I mean, we've got this passage out of the prophet of Isaiah's writing where We're told that a virgin shall bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So was this just poetry? Was this just metaphor? Or was this an actual prediction that God would be among us, that God would be with us, and that this would take place as the result of the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, that Isaiah was speaking of when he wrote that would come among us and that that Messiah would be the incarnation of God. Does the Bible actually say that? Well, consider this. That passage I read to you about the virgin giving birth and calling her son Emmanuel, God with us, that was in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Chapter 9, just a few paragraphs later, says this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, that is a reference to the promised Messiah. So, obviously, Isaiah is saying very clearly that this Babe born in a manger from the virgin, who will be called Emmanuel, God with us, is also the incarnation of God himself. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Now, so Isaiah is giving us the foundation upon which we should be discussing a lot of the other stuff that follows. So does Jesus identify himself with these passages? Well, the answer is yes. 
he repeatedly refers to himself in the context of those prophecies. Now, people will tell you that, well, Jesus never said he was God. He never uttered the words, quote unquote, I am God. Is that true? Or is there more to the story? And if he never did utter the words, I am God, what did he say of himself? Well, one of the things that Jesus repeatedly says of himself is that he is the son of man. And what does he mean by that? Well, it's very clear. It's as clear as the nose on your face. This is not a confusing statement on his part. Jesus is speaking to Jews who understood exactly what he meant when he said he was the son of man because he's referring to a prophecy in the book of Daniel, where in chapter 7, Daniel says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That's from the book of Daniel, where he introduces this concept of the Son of Man. It refers back to Isaiah, where Isaiah is telling us that there will be a virgin who gives birth, miraculously gives birth, to a boy, the Messiah, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then Isaiah clarifies that this is a reference to God, that the Messiah is no common man, that he is the son of man, and that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. So we need to understand this when Jesus calls himself Son of Man. He's referring back to the prophecies. And we also need to understand that the Jews knew what he was saying and that if we don't understand our history, if we don't learn the context for what Jesus was saying to the people as he walked and talked among them, that we're going to miss the point. Jesus is, number one, Emmanuel, God with us, because he is the son that was born to a virgin miraculously as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and then we need to understand the prophecy of Daniel, where we're told that the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven and existed with the Ancient of Days in eternity before he's incarnate as the Messiah on earth. These are the prophecies that Jesus is referring to when he defines himself as the Son of Man. But there's more. Let's go to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Now, the reason I'm moving from Old Testament here to New Testament is I want you to understand that Jesus was a man of the Old Testament because he inspired it. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. We can't create two separate gods. I really resist this idea that Christians should unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. That's a quote from Andy Stanley, an evangelical pastor in Atlanta. That's garbage. That's nonsense. Christians can't unhitch themselves from the Old Testament because Jesus didn't. Jesus, when he was asked, 
who are you, referred back to Old Testament prophecy to answer the question. He's referring to Isaiah. He's referring to Daniel. He's referring to the inspired word of God that he himself as God inspired in the Old Testament to say, this is who I am. So he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he is also the son of man who comes in the clouds and is conversing with the ancient of days in eternity before he's incarnated. On Christmas Day, that's why Christmas is important, that's why it is the core of Christianity, because it is the incarnation of God on earth. Now, how do we know this? Well, go to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. It's very clear. John starts out by removing all doubt as to who Jesus is. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Was God. It was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John then goes on to say, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Who is he referring to? He's referring to Jesus, obviously. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word made everything. The Word is part and parcel. It's the same as the Creator. The Creator is the Word, and the Word is the Creator. That's the point that John is making right now. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And the word became flesh. It's as if he's doubling down right now. If you haven't understood my point thus far, he's saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is in beautiful language telling us that Christmas is a day of incarnation. That the word, the eternal word, the eternal logos, the way, the truth, and the life, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory as of the only begotten Son of God. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, Jesus goes on to answer the question of his deity repeatedly in scriptures. So when people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, they don't know what they're talking about. Jesus says that you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He refers to himself again as the Son of Man. And I've said it repeatedly. This is a reference to the fact that Daniel and Isaiah both tell us that the Messiah that the Son of Man is a heavenly figure, a divine figure, who rules forever over his kingdom that will never be destroyed. Again, I've already read that passage to you. And this is emphasized throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. 
that the incarnation of God, God taking on human form, is the core to Christianity. That's why Christmas changed the world, because God walked among us. He became incarnate. He took on human form. He he claimed for himself the title of the Son of Man, and thereby he was claiming for himself heavenly origin and his coming eternal kingdom. Uh, This is reality. This is Jesus's self-description. Now, lest there be any doubt, let's go to a story um, where Jesus is walking in the Temple Mound one day, and the Jews came up to him, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the elites, the professors, and the politicians of the day. They came up to him, and they asked him to spell out for them who he was. This is their quote. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They say that in John 10, 24. They wanted to know if he was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that I've been referring to over and over again here, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, the heavenly figure that was prophesied by Isaiah and Daniel. They wanted to know if Jesus was claiming to be this. Now, Jesus responds to them. And what does he say? He tells them that he's already told them through his works and his words. He then actually says that those who follow him, his sheep who obey him as the shepherd, will have eternal life if they'll just listen to his voice and follow him. And then he spells it out very clearly for them. Now listen to this. He says, I and the Father are one. One more time here. I and the Father are one. Jesus says that. Now, evidently, this claim was clear enough for the Jews to understand what Jesus was saying because they picked up stones to kill him again for blaspheming. And they make this very clear in their response to him. As they're picking up the stones, they actually say this, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, i.e. kill you, execute you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Unquote. That's what they say in response to his claim that I and the Father are one. Now, Jesus got under their skin more than once by making this claim. So this just isn't a throwaway claim. This isn't an exception. This is the rule of Jesus' own teaching, his own identity, his own claims of himself as to who he is. In John 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus promises life to those who follow and obey him, and this infuriates his opponents. Again, the professors and the politicians, uh, the elites, the smarter-than-thous of his day, they considered his claim arrogant because they thought, okay, um, he's promising life to those who follow and obey him. This is a claim that's even superior to Abraham and what Abraham promised. And Jesus says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it 
and was glad. Now, this is very critical. Abraham saw it and was glad, says Jesus, of his own identity, of his own day. And the Jews respond and say, this is preposterous. You're you're not even 50 years old. How in the world would Abraham have seen you and rejoiced about you? You didn't live when Abraham lived. What are you talking about? And Jesus' response is very, very, very clear. He says this to these naysayers. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, what's he saying there? Well, you need to understand what I am means. Jesus was claiming the name of God, the God of Israel, that God used for himself at the burning bush when he revealed himself to Moses. The one who said to Moses, I am. He didn't say I was or I will be. God defined himself as I am, an eternal I am, an eternal existence. It, it, It almost sounds like poor grammar, and that's because it's ignoring past, present, and future. God is saying there is no past, present, and future with me. I am. And Jesus says to these elites, I'm saying to you before Abraham was, I am. That's his response to, well, how could Abraham have known you? Jesus is saying, it's because I am the I am that Abraham spoke to. I am the I am that spoke to Abraham. That's what Jesus is referring to. And what did the elites do? They picked up stones again to throw at him because Jesus defined himself as God. That's what he was saying. So, The story of Christmas is this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, Christ. Now, the definition of Christ is what? The divine nature of God, the divine revelation of God, the Word of God made flesh and dwelling among us. That's the story of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation, the advent. The coming of Christ is the celebration of the birth of Christianity. And without that, the world is lost because he came to save his people from their sins. That's the beauty of the story of Christmas. That's why I say even atheists should thank God for Christmas. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.